ministry training you are meeting today in your usual place. And if you are part of uh, New Believers Foundations, you are meeting today as well. Usual place, usual things going on. So we feed you and it's all awesome. So we're doing a series on uh, uh, kind of theming it off of some of the summer's movies because we do, we do our, our goal in uh, July is to outreach and to reach out to people who don't know the Lord and kind of bring them in, you know, to, so they can hear the gospel and people that are unconnected to church. We want to connect them. So anybody see Jurassic World at all? Yeah. yeah? Anybody see that? Right. You know, what my problem is with this movie. I'm like, didn't you people watch the first three? Right. Don't you know that if you go to the island, you're going to be chased by dinosaurs? <laughs> Duh. Doesn't seem to register. So today, one of the themes that we're doing is uh, we're going to talk about problems. And we're going to talk about purposes behind your problems. And for those people on the island, that was a problem, right? Dinosaurs are the problem. In fact, that's one of the reasons why we like movies. You know why we like movies, anybody? Right? Because people, people in the movies have more problems than you. Right? You go to the movies and you walk out there and you go, shh. At least I'm not being chased by dinosaurs, okay? At least they didn't blow up my house. At least the ground San Andreas isn't opened up and everybody's dying and falling. At least, they, you know, I got problems, but I don't have that kind of problem. It's one of the reasons why we like movies. So we're going to look at how, uh, we're going to look at problems. And we're going to look at problems from God's perspective. And what I want to show you this morning is how the Lord's desire is to use the problems in your life to create a greater purpose. So let's just say it together. There's purpose. Come on, you don't sound convincing. There's purpose. Act. It's a movie scene, right? So we just put your acting on. There's purpose in the problem. Psalm 119. So just give you a little bit of background and some of you are not familiar with the Bible. Um, the book of Psalms, which is one of the most popular books uh, for people, particularly reading, um, is a book of uh, not just poems and lyrics and, and songs, but it's written from a perspective of experience. So in the scripture, you have books that are narrative, which are storytelling. They're just a narrative form. There are books that are poetic, such as the Psalms. Uh, Proverbs would be another one. Uh, and then there are books that are prophetic, which foretell or speak forth from the Spirit of God truths. And what the Psalms are is they are, um, particularly the book of Psalms, it's written from the perspective of experience. So when you're reading the, 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 the verses in the book of Psalms, you're reading from someone who has experienced God and has encountered God. And so there's a lot of emotion in the book of Psalms. And that's probably why it makes it one of the more popular books, because there's the expression of emotion. There's the, excuse me, the expression of questions. And so that's just a good perspective to have when you're looking particularly at the book of Psalms. And so the writer of the book of Psalms, one of the main writers is David. This is Psalm 119. And he's talking about troubles. And so again, this is written from a person who has experienced God, doesn't just know of God, doesn't just question God, but is in relationship with him and has experienced him. And he says this, my troubles have turned out for the best. How does he know that? Because he's experienced God through his problems. What has his problems done for him? They have forced me to learn your word. So one of the things we see the problems do is problems clearly show us that we don't have the answer. Problems clearly show us and force us to look for answers beyond ourselves. And the wisest place we look for those answers are in the scriptures. So he's saying problems have turned me out for the best because they forced me to look to your word. And now because I've looked to your word, your word means more to me than gold. 
Because I have received your word, I've gotten counsel from your word, I've gotten the answers through your word, now all of a sudden I value what I didn't value before. Problems that we face will either develop us or defeat us. Here's the problem with problems. You ready for the problem with problems? Everybody has them. That's the problem with problems. The problem with problems is, is that we all have them. And we have them at one place or another, and one time or another, and sometimes it's more rapidly than problem after problem. Other times there are seasons where there are not a lot of problems. But the issue is, is that we're all going to have problems. In John chapter 16, Jesus has got his disciples around him, right? He's teaching them, and he's saying to them, he says this to them, I have said these things to you that you may have peace. Well, what has he said? All of the things that he has said. I have spoken my word to you so that you can have peace and you can have assurance because in the world you will have problems. That's what that word tribulation means. It means problems, unsolvable problems. You're going to have issues around you that you're not going to have the answers to. And what is the world? The world is the system in which we live. This broken system of thought, of attitude, of ideas. That's what the cosmos, the word cosmos means in the Bible. It's not so much a physical place as much as it is an atmosphere of attitude and an atmosphere of action. In this cosmos, you're going to have problems. But take heart, I've overcome the world. So he's pointing out to us the fact that we're going to have problems so we can all feel a little relieved now. Whoo, feel better. I'm not a loser because I have problems. Duh, we all have problems, right? And then he tells us what the answer is. He says, I'm the answer. Be not be afraid because I've overcome the world. And what's the issue with that? Jesus isn't a answer. He isn't one of the answers. He's not a possible answer. He is the answer. Jesus is the answer, the absolute answer to all of life's problems and to all of life's questions. And when you wrestle with the problem and you wrestle with the question and in wrestling with the problem and wrestling with the question, you press in towards Jesus, towards Christ with your problems, with your questions, with your pursuit, you will understand that he is the answer. But those answers are not revealed to you until you press in with relationship. The kingdom is not revealed to those who observe. I just want to let you know that. The kingdom of God, the dominion, the reign, the power of God is made available to those who press into it. Jesus said from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. What does that mean? It means forceful opposition. As it means. So Jesus has come to bring and reveal the father and he's come to bring and give us access to the kingdom. But that kingdom that he's called humankind into faces forceful opposition. In other words, there's resistance against you to keep you from stepping into the things that God wants for you. There's resistance against you, even if you don't know the Lord this morning, there's a resistance against you to keep you from stepping in to the, to the salvation and the hope and the forgiveness that God has for you. So the kingdom of heaven suffers violent resistance. And he says, but those who want it, this is the implication, the violent take it by force. In other words, the only way into that kingdom is for you to overcome attitude barriers, for you to overcome perception barriers, for you to overcome pride barriers, for you to overcome fear barriers and to press in. That's what it's saying to us. So the kingdom that God has for us, the dominion, the reign, the promises, the future, the hope, he has it, and, but we face violent opposition to get there. Not by him, but he says, if you want it, you must violently take it by force. You must by force push into it. So he says, he's the answer. 
And what you need to know this morning is if you're a Christian and you're a believer, oftentimes we run from conflict when the believer, the Christian, is the absolute answer to the conflict. You cannot be defeated, Christian. You are an inconquerable people. Again and again and again, I will tell you, Jesus is more than conquerors, overcomers. That's more than poetry. The only thing that defeats the believer is when they quit. That is the only thing that defeats the, the believer. The Christian will succeed so long as they do not quit. Be not weary in your well-doing, for in due season you will reap if you faint not. Galatians, what does that mean? It means keep pressing in, keep following God, keep believing God, don't be weary. You will receive the benefit. You will receive the victory if, circle the word if, you don't quit. That is the only thing that, 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 that defeats the Christian. The only thing. There is no other. That's why it's important that you recognize this. The war against you, the spiritual war against the believer, the atmosphere that's created against us is to get you to quit. Every single thing, the end game against the believer is to get the believer to quit. To quit on their faith, to quit on the purposes of God, to pick something. Whatever it is that God has for you, the enemy wars against you to, in order to get you into a position to where you will quit. That's the end game. And if we recognize that, and we recognize that the Bible says that the cowardly, my soul has no pleasure in those who, 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 who retreat, right? Those who draw back. My, I don't have any pleasure in the ones who draw back. We are called to press in. That's what the believer does. We set our face to the wind and we move into it, whether it's popular or not. We push forward into the promises of God. We were created for conflict, and through conflict, we experience God's goodness. I know that's hard to understand. But we experience, through God, through conflict, and through problems, when the Christian follows the Lord, we sh God shows himself to us, and he shows us that he is good. And he tests our faith, and our faith is tested and proves it to be what it is. Most people fail to see God's work in their problems. We fail to see the work of God in our problems. We're trained and taught an attitude that problems are problems and we should run from problems and problems means that there's something wrong with you or problems mean that you're just really screwed up and you're really messed up. The Bible has a whole different perspective on problems. The Bible basically tells us multiple times that when we have a problem, we're to party. I mean, what? So it tells us, I'll read you a couple of verses here this morning and it tells the believer, Christian, when you have a problem, you need to party. Oons, 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 oons. You need to be throwing it down. What's going on? Did you get a new car? No, man, I'm about to file bankruptcy. Oons, 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 oons. <laughs> what? Exactly. We don't see the work. Jesus does not cause the problem. This is important paradigm to understand, but he will use them. God does not cause the problems. Understand that? He is not the author of the problem but he will use the problem for his purpose. He will use the problem for your betterment. So here's the question. Then where do problems come from? Great question, glad you asked. Problems come from a broken and fallen world and from a broken and fallen people. Humanity has fallen, fallen away from God. And in falling away from God, we have fallen away from the knowledge of who he is. We've fallen away from the knowledge of who we are, our identity. We've fallen away from the knowledge of our purpose. We've fallen away from the knowledge and the atmosphere of our environment. We don't know who we are, why we are, where we belong. We're lost. That's the result of sin. Sin has caused us to fall. 
and we have fallen away from God. And in falling away from God, we've lost everything. All perspective is lost. And we regain perspective by coming back to Christ, giving our heart to him. And that begins our journey, our long journey forward into right perspective. But not just are people broken and fallen in wrong perspective, but we have a whole system that's fallen. Anybody knows if you deal, my son uh, does, um, he kind of does tournament online gaming. And I'm trying to see the value in this, okay, as a father. And, and what I do see him doing is that he's putting these teams together and he's working and negotiating all these sort of business things that are going on. And he was telling me this morning that his team had a contract to do this specific thing or these people were gonna fund him to do something and they backed out of the contract. And my son was like going, I don't understand, we had a contract. You know what I said to him? Welcome to the real world of business, Elias. This what, that's what goes on. And so we have a broken, fallen system where it's about greed, it's about corruption, it's about fallenness, it's about selfishness, it's about how many people can I step on to get to the place that I wanna to get to. That's what our system is. So problems are a result of broken people, okay, lost in all ways, and broken system that is lost in all ways. And that's why we need a savior. That's why we need salvation. Problems come from a broken world and broken people. Problems also come from doing what is right. Oftentimes I hear people say, I don't, I don't know what I did wrong. Why do I have all these problems? You may have not done anything wrong because problems come from doing right just as much as they come from doing wrong. You may be doing the right thing, but you're dealing with a person who does the wrong thing and you're doing the right thing, but the person on the other end is doing the wrong thing and they're causing the problem. You see what I'm saying? Or you're doing the right thing and you're involved in the wrong, in a, in a, in a wrong arena and, the, in the wrong, and you're the right, doing, trying to do the right thing in the wrong place and that's what's causing the problem. It comes from right living and it also comes from wrong living. The majority of our problems come from poor choices. That's just a fact. We choose poorly, right? That's why we need wisdom. We associate with the wrong people in the wrong places and we end up doing the wrong things and we create all kinds of problems for ourselves and everyone around us and it's through wrong choices. So this is where problems come from. Next slide. And here's a party verse for you. Count it all joy. Woo! Get out the karaoke machine, people. It's time to party when you have problems and troubles of every kind. This is one of these verses that kill me. This verse, from the time I've, first time I started walking with Jesus, this is one of the verses that I have always had a problem with. I have a problem with the verse that tells me to have happiness in my problems. I have a problem with that. And I would always be like, are you kidding me? What does this mean? I'm supposed to be happy when I have problems? When I meet problems of every kind? For in your problems, your faith will be tested and it will produce steadfastness or patience. So what's telling us what problems do is it tests or proves. So through the problems, our faith is put to the test because in your problem, you have nothing else to offer but your faith. In the problem, you have nothing else to stand on but the word and the promises of God. So that's what happens is the problems test us and shows us that our faith is what he says it is. Our faith is sure. Our faith is not in emptiness. Our faith is in sureness. So the, the, the problem tests our faith. The problem not only tests our faith, the problem tests and shows us who God is. If you will look to the Lord in your problems and you will give him an opportunity, here's the problem. Here's the problem with problems. Most people never give the Lord an opportunity to do anything inside their problem. They rage against him and shake their fist at God as if he were the source of their problem. 
but they never give him an opportunity. They never humble themselves and say, Lord, help me in my problem. Would you help me in my problem? They never invite him. Jesus does not go where he is not wanted. Let's just say this together because you will understand the Lord in a whole different way. Jesus, Jesus. does not go where he is not wanted and he does not do what he is not asked. That's why the Bible repeatedly tells us to ask. The Bible repeatedly tells us to welcome him. The Bible repeatedly tells us to go before him because without that interaction, nothing happens. And so what happens is, is the Bible says by a man's choices, calamity comes, but his heart rages against God. So we choose poorly and we make a mess of ourselves. And then what's the result of that? We rage against God. Why would you let this happen to me? Why would you do this to me? Why, 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 why? We rage against God rather than get letting him have an opportunity to move in the problem. Because what happens is, is the problems will show you the goodness of God if you'll ask him. The Lord will be merciful to you. The Lord will be good to you. The Lord will be gracious to you. But he can only do that if you give him an opportunity. Lord, come into my problem. I've made a mess. This is a complete disaster, and I don't know how I ended up in this. But I need help. Would you help me? All who call upon the Lord will be saved. Not just forgiveness. All who call upon the Lord will experience his salvation. That's not just spiritual. That's emotional, and that's circumstantial. All who call upon him. So that's the key. How do we open the door? Call upon him. So what we see is that problems test us. And what we see in this verse two, problems are inevitable. They're going to come. It's going to happen. Problems are unpredictable. We don't know when they're coming. That's why most people live their lives in fear. But see, when you follow Christ, the Bible says perfect love casts out fear. So here I am knowing I am perfectly loved by my father knowing that God is for me, who can be against me. I have perfect love. I do not fear what people can do to me. I do not fear what circumstances will happen because God is for me. And if I know and understand that God is for me, I don't, I'm not afraid of unpredictable things that happen. In fact, the scripture tells us, do not be afraid of the sudden disaster that overtakes the wicked. So let's define wicked. Let's define righteous and let's define wicked. Wickedness, are, what God looks at as a person who is wicked is outside of relationship with him. So someone who is not given their heart to Christ falls into the category of wicked. Doesn't mean you're an evil person. It means you're outside of his goodness. What does righteousness mean? To a person who is righteous is defined by not somebody who doesn't smoke, drink, or chew, or hang out with those that do. A person who is righteous is someone who has given their heart to Christ and now is made right with God. And so what the Bible is saying to the person who is right with him, don't be afraid of the sudden disaster that comes upon the people who are not right with me. That's what he's saying. I'm not, that does, any kind of calamity that's gonna come on, right with, come on you, I'm gonna take you through it if you'll look to me. That's the difference. And you say, well, what, how do I go from being wicked to being righteous? Well, that's a really simple transition. All you have to do is give your heart to Christ. It's really simple. Really simple, yet extremely difficult for many people because they cannot humble themselves or humble their hearts. They cannot, because we love lordship of ourselves, that's the problem, that's what sin means. Sin means, I can ex wickedness is, I can exist without you. I don't need you. Wickedness is, I do not need to come into relationship with you. I am my own relationship. It's not God is who you says he is. It's God as I understand him to be. And so re receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I will not bow my heart. Then you will never be saved. You will never be forgiven. You will never be healed. And you will never experience his goodness. What you can experience is his mercy. 
Because you see, God is good upon the wicked and the just. So even a person who doesn't know Christ can call out to him and ask God to intervene in their circumstances. And you know what he'll do? He'll intervene. And do you know why? Because he's that good and he's that loving. And the Bible says he sends the rain upon the just and upon the unjust. But the bread is for the children. So while the unjust person receives his mercy, the firefighter Jesus, where Jesus shows up and puts the fire out for you, he goes, okay, you good? We're good. You want to give your heart to me? No, I like living in a burned out building. Okay, cool. You know, you experience firefighter Jesus, whereas the son and the daughter, those who give their hearts to him, we not only experience his mercy, we experience the fullness of his love. We actually eat at his table and we, de we delight at his table and we receive from his abundance. That's our inheritance. So problems are inevitable. Problems are unpredictable. Problems come in all shapes and sizes. Can I get a witness? Can I get a what, what? That's right. Problems come in all shapes and sizes. Big ones, small ones, yellow ones, black ones, blue ones, green ones. Problems come in all kinds of sizes. But the point of this is that problems have a purpose. Problems come from brokenness, but God has a purpose in the problem. And so what are some of God's purposes? I'm going to run you through some. First thing that God does in our problems is his intent with, his pro with problems in your life is to direct you. His, his purpose is to direct you. Let's just say this together. Let's just you say, Jesus' purpose in my problem is to direct me. Proverbs 20, verse 30. You ready? Grab the chair. Pain from problems cleanses away evil, and discipline purifies the heart. What does that mean? Anybody ever been told not to touch a hot stove? Right? What do you naturally do? You want to touch that hot stove. Or at the very least, you want to hover your hand over it and see how hot it actually is, right? We learn to not touch the hot stove by touching the hot stove. The pain from that teaches us not to do that again, right? And discipline, which is right behavior. So, the, so here's the person, the kid that touches, or the person that touches the hot stove. Ah, okay, that just, I'm not going to do that again. And now I'm going to, every time I see a hot stove, I'm going to discipline myself. And so now that's what's going to purify my heart. I'm going to start making right choices because I don't want to experience the pain that I just experienced. You will change in areas of your life when it becomes too painful for you to bear. You will not change until you're sick and tired of being sick and tired. So ladies, if you like dating guys that like to break plates and scream and yell, you're not going to stop dating guys that break plates and scream and yell until it hurts you enough to change. Okay? It, you just won't. You just keep repeating, going around the bend, around the bend, around the bend, around the bend. You're going to date the same type of person. You will not continue to make the same type of financial choices poorly until it hurts you enough to where you realize, I need to stop making this choice. You just won't. Pain is what changes us. And so the, one of the purposes of God in the problem is to redirect us away from things that are harming us and into things that will help us. Problems call attention to things that we are ignoring. Ignoring it. So a problem oftentimes calls attention to the very issue that we are ignoring. There's a problem. I shared it in first service and somebody's like, wow, I really liked it when you shared that. So I'll throw it out there again. You got a problem with your kid in school. Okay. Well, what is that problem telling you? Well, it could be telling you any number of things. It could be telling you that your kid needs more time with you because oftentimes that's what kids do. They freak out to get our attention, right? Could mean that your kid needs tutoring, needs some help, can't cope, could mean that your kid needs to go to another school because the environment in which you've placed your child is a bad environment and that problem is causing the problem, right? 
And so it's just directing you, directing you back into the family relationship, directing you back to help the kid in the way that they need help, or directing you away from something that's toxic. And so the issue with problems oftentimes is to direct us. Aristotle, famous Greek philosopher, says the greatest human teacher's name is pain. Ah, everybody say this together, ouch. That's right, pain is your teacher, unfortunately, right? You learn more from, that, from your failures than you ever do from your successes. It's just a fact. Next slide. Problems cause us to look up, to look in, to look and to look out. Problems are the cause. They cause us to look past ourselves and to the Lord. Why? Because problems bring us to the end of ourselves. That is what they're designed to do. You have a problem in your marriage. It's to bring you to the end of yourself and to show you you don't know what you're doing. Oh, happy day. You have problems raising children. These are really the climactic problems of the human life. We have problems raising our kids. Brings us to the point to where we have to actually acknowledge, I don't know what I'm doing. You have problems keeping a job. Brings you to the end of yourself and actually makes you look at and say, I don't know what I'm doing. Problems bring us to the end of ourselves. It shows us our inefficiencies or our inability to cope. But here's the good news. You are not designed to do it alone. Fundamental truth of the human race. You are not designed to do it alone. You were designed not just for human community, i.e. the church, which is encouraging atmosphere of an environment, but you were designed to go through life in relationship with your creator. And his name is Jesus. He says, apart from me, you can do some things. No, he says, apart from me, you can do absolutely nothing. And you don't believe that? Life is going to teach you that apart from Christ, you can do absolutely nothing. You're not smart enough. You don't have enough money. You don't come from a good enough family. None of that stuff matters. Life is going to teach you that you don't have what it takes. And that, in that lesson, you'll understand that the goal of that lesson is to understand that you were never designed to do it all by yourself. That's not the design. Life has been designed by our creator to be in common union with him. In him, we live, move, and have our being. All things exist by him and through him and to him are all things and by and for him and all things by him all things consist. He's the essence of everything. You are not. I am. Or he is. Or nor am I. So what problems do is they show us our lack. It also shows us the poverty of our abilities and our choices. It shows us how bad our choices really are. <laughs> you make a bad choice and you were you ever anybody ever done this? Maybe you're not like me, but maybe you just go, what was I thinking? What, what could I have possibly been experiencing at the moment to make me want to buy a six-foot bird to put in my, a stuffed bird to put in my living room? Or any number of things that we do. You know, you look and you're like, what was I thinking? Why did I want a car with pink interior? What was I possibly thinking at the moment? <laughs> but it shows us the foolishness of our choices. And the pain of the problem is one of the marinades of worship. Mm. Anybody like barbecue? Yes. Hmm? One person? One person like barbecue? Yeah, okay. So you got to help me out. So what are, the mar what are the Latin marinades here? We got mojo. We got that one. What's that badia one? I couldn't hear it in the first service. Somebody shouted it out. But it's got like the orange, the sliced orange on it. Comes in a bottle. It looks like a Coke bottle. I want to drink it because I like it so much. But, you know, you, you pour it on chicken. What is it called? Whatever that is right there. I couldn't hear it again. But that's what I'm talking about. 
We get all these great marinades, you know, and if you ever go to a barbecue and you marinate it, man, marinate it. You just put it in there, you just let that stuff marinate. And you're just like, yeah. And then you go and you put it on the grill. Somebody, somebody's getting hungry right now. I am. And you hit it on the grill, and as soon as it hits the grill, man, you can just smell it. Not just smelling the meat, you're smelling that marinade. Then you take that meat off the grill and you eat it, and it's amazing. Well, what worship is to the Lord is an offering. We offer something to him. And the Bible actually likens it to burning incense or coal, and it's a sacrifice. And the things that we offer to Jesus, he wants them marinated. In case you didn't know that. Jesus likes barbecue, because that's why the Bible says all the fat belongs to the Lord. Or he doesn't like barbecue, he likes bacon. I can biblically prove to you that Jesus likes bacon. It's actually in the Bible. The portion of the fat is to be offered to the Lord. God's a bacon lover, plain and simple. Right there it is in the text. But when offerings were to be... <laughs> what? What is this guy talking about? But anyway, he's on food. He's on a food kick. Is he like bacon? Is he like barbecue? What's his problem? But what we do is we make offerings to the Lord, and our offerings are things that we give to him. And when we give something to the Lord, he wants it marinated. And what is it that we marinate? He likes it marinated. We marinate it with thanksgiving. So when we offer worship or we offer a sacrifice to him in some physical way and we offer something to him with thanksgiving, we are offering him flavored offering. We're offering him a marinated offering. When we offer something to him out of love and just adoration. It is marination. We are marinating the offering. We're seasoning the offering. Pain is a marinade. It's the most neglected of all marinades. We hold our pain. We don't release it. We hold our pain and we certainly don't offer it to God. But pain is a sacred offering to the Lord. He wants it. And he wants your offering. He wants your disappointment. He wants your frustration. He wants your offense. I don't want to offer anything to God. He's disappointed me. That's what he wants you to offer. I offer you my disappointment. I offer you my, my whatever it is. He wants you to offer it. That's another marinated offering is your pain. I'm hurt. I'm painful. I'm disappointed. I'm wounded. I'm struggling. I don't even know what's wrong with myself. Help me, Lord. It's a marinade of an offering. In the book of Leviticus, the priests were, they, God was describing how sacrifices were to be made. And in the Old Testament, blood, as in the New Testament, blood was the required price for sin. And so people had to make an offering to God that was paid for in blood. Jesus pays for the sin. That's a type, that's a picture of the true reality, which is Christ. The lambs that were offered in the Old Testament are a mirror to point us to the lamb, the lamb of God that was in the New Testament who gave his blood once and for all, okay? But in the Old Testament, they were to make offerings before the Lord and those offerings, even today, Christian, you are to make offerings to the Lord. Not just offerings, but sacrificial offerings. You say, no, Jesus has made all the offerings for me. You're completely missing it. This is where Christians don't understand the depth and the dynamic of relationship that waits for them on the other side of the offering. There's a depth of relationship. There's a depth of experience that awaits the Christian when we learn to sacrifice, when we learn to submit, when we learn to yield. We enter into something that's something far greater than we could ever imagine. And so we just sit there and we play, we play Jesus pinwheel. This is what we teach the Christian. Jesus has paid it all and we just spin a pinwheel around and think that that's our, that's our depth of relationship with him. It's through sacrifice. It's through commitment. It's through giving more and more of yourself. Lots of people go, oh, I, Jesus, come into my heart and forgive me. But they're like, don't touch my sexuality. That's mine. Don't you tell me what I'm to do with my sexuality. Or they go, Jesus, here's my heart. Don't touch my money. 
Don't you tell me what to do with my money. Jesus, here's my heart. Don't you tell me what kind of attitude I should have. Don't you tell me what kind of future I should have. Don't you tell me what kind of choices I should have. Those are key areas of your life that you are unwilling to sacrifice. Don't shout me down. <laughs> Getting quiet. It's okay. But in the book of Leviticus, the point of this was, that in the book of Leviticus, God is telling the people how to give offerings to him. And he told the people, go and bring me your best. Bring me something that costs you something. Don't you dare bring me something that doesn't cost you anything. You think God's not interested in you giving something that doesn't cost you anything? He told Cain to take it back home. If you know the story, Cain and Abel both made offerings to the Lord. And people say, well, Cain offered blood. No, it wasn't, or Abel offered blood. It had nothing to do with blood. It had to do with the substance of what they offered. It says Abel offered his first and his best, and it was received of the Lord, and, Cain, and Abel entered into a relationship, a depth of relationship. Cain just basically looked at Abel and said, well, you're making me feel bad. I guess I got to do something too. And he just threw away the stuff he couldn't sell at the three flea market. Cain offered a, a produce of the ground. He's like, well, nobody bought this at the farmer's market, so I guess I'll go give it to Jesus. And the Lord's like, you're going to offer me that? He tells the Old Testament, he tells him, he says, listen, what you offer me, go offer it to your governor. Go give to your boss what you're willing to give me. Show up when you want to and see if you'll still have a job. Offer the sacrifice and the commitment that you give to your boss and see if he'll still, you'll still have an employment. So he says, am I not more worthy than your governor? Am I not more worthy than your boss? That's the whole idea of worship. That's what worship is. Something that costs me something and it's ascribed to someone who has higher value and in the declaration we say, you are worth it. You are worth it. That's what worship means. You are worth my time. You are worth my energy. You are worth my thoughts. You are worth my money. You are worth my whole being. You are worth all that I am. That is worship. Everything else is trinkets. David said, I will make no offering to the Lord that costs me nothing. Men sacrificed their life to bring David a cup of water. you imagine? Here's David the king. They bring him something and he dumps it on the ground. And he said, I'm not going to make anything. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take it. These men risked their lives for me. Then there's another place where somebody wanted to sell him something or give it to him. And David said, I'm not going to take that from you because it's an offering to the Lord. And I will make no offering to the Lord that doesn't cause me pain. If, it, if I don't feel it, I'm not giving it. Let's just say it together. There is pain in the offering. And in that pain is a shift into another dimension of experience that you've never had. In that pain is a shift into a depth of relationship that you cannot get any other way. And you wonder why people that under encounter God in these ways, or you wonder the depth of maturity that some Christians have because they know the principle of sacrifice. Just saying. And in the book of Leviticus, they were to bring, the, they were to bring before the Lord something. They, he said, I want the best. I want the best. Bring me your first and bring me your best. And if you don't want to bring it, then you just keep it home. You tuck it under your pillow. You go spend it. You do whatever it is you want to do with it. But if you, because if, I'm not interested in it. I gave you absolutely everything that I have. And my absolute best is available to you. And, I, and we can give him nothing less than the same. And the people were to bring, come on. Yeah, somebody should clap for that. Let's go. So just going back to Leviticus, you can leave that one up there because I'll run through this. But in Leviticus, they were, to bring the, they were to bring the offering before the door. So they were to bring it to the priest. Jesus is our high priest. They were to bring it to before the door of worship. 
So what happens with this, with this idea of how we present our pain to God and how problems become something that becomes something of value is they were to bring it before the Lord and they, the, the priest was to take the animal and offer the animal and the animal would pay the price for what the person did because God was showing you sin costs something. Sin is painful. Sin creates damage. Sin creates loss. And so the animal would have to be slain for the sin of the person and it would be brought to the doorway. But when the priest was offering the sacrifice, he was not just to offer the sacrifice. He was to kosher kill or, or, or as we would say, humanely kill the animal. So the animal would feel no pain. When the animal was dead, they were to remove the organs from the animal and they were to wash the organs of the animal. And then they were to burn the whole animal on, fi on the fire. What the heck does that mean? Well, part of the idea is that they were to present something to God that cost them something, or they were to present something to God that was painful. And so when we present our pain to God, not only does it open up a doorway for us into a greater depth of relationship, not only does it open up a doorway of encounter to us, but it also does something and cleanses us internally. Why else would God have them wash the organs of the animal? Because he's sanitary? Really? No, he is, there's a symbolism. There's a spiritual symbolism behind the action that in offering me your pain, in offering me your, 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 whatever it is you're offering me, I'm opening up a doorway for you and I'm actually creating an, app, an environment to where you can be clean inside. You can't be clean inside until you offer your pain. We know that. Sociologists know that. Physiologists know that. Psychologists know that. Most of people's mental problems, most of pro people's even physical problems that make themselves known in various pains are because they themselves are harboring pain within their heart and they've never fully released their pain. So pain becomes an offering. Pain becomes a marinade. And pain becomes, an, and in that offering, it, it becomes a cleansing experience. And you don't have to be all holy and righteous with God. You can rage. You can tell him, I'm disappointed, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, and he's going to listen to you because he's patient. And then you know what he's going to do once you've emptied yourself, because this is worship. Em worship means empty. So he em once you've emptied yourself, you know what he's going to do? He's going to be able to give you something back. He can't give you anything back until you've emptied yourself to him. He can't fill you with who he is if you're so full of yourself. And so he wants, you want to empty all your pain out, and then you're going to listen to him. And he may not speak to you in the moment, but he's going to begin a process of ministry, and he's going to begin to show you things. He's going to be, because you've now given him the opportunity that he didn't have before. And he's going to begin to show you things and he's going to teach you things. And he's going to show you that the problem's on your side of the equation. He's always right, people. If there's a problem, the problem's on our side. It always is. And it's just, we just don't, we're just blind and we don't understand it. And so what happens when we offer it to him, it opens ourselves up and then the Lord becomes, because he's our teacher, he's our, the Lord is our teacher, he teaches us. He shows us why we're in this situation, why we're in this circumstance, why we haven't, you know, he'll show you these things. Problems direct us to him and problems direct us down a new path Two, I'm going to move faster. Last three go real quick. Jesus uses problems to inspect us. Someone said, if you want to know what's inside of people, just put them in hot water. People are like tea bags. Oh, I'm holy, pastor. Put them in hot water. You see how unholy you are. You know, oh, I'm self-controlled. I have a lot of patience. I'm a very patient person. Put them in hot water. You'll see, you know, I forgive. I can forgive anyone. Oh. I just walk in absolute forgiveness towards anyone, really. Put them in the right environment and it'll expose what's in us. So problems reveal what is in us. Problems extract the junk from us. Problems reveal your fear. I'm just going to skip James. We read it. Reveal your fear. They reveal your weakness. They reveal your trust. They reveal your obedience or lack of either. 
They reveal your willingness to change and your willingness to risk. What problems do is they show us who we are so that we can face who we are in order to become who we are created to be. Okay? Let's just say that together. I must face who I am in order to become who I am created to be. You have to face the fact that you're a sinner in order for you to become a son and daughter of God. You have to face that. I don't want to face that. Well, then you'll never become a son and daughter. You have to face the fact that you're dysfunctional I don't, in, in order for you to become functional. I don't want to face that. Well, then you'll never become functional. Problems are used to inspect us. They force the issues to the surface so that we have to deal with them or, or ignore them. So what happens is, is the problems are going to come and the issues are going to surface. It's just going to happen, right? Any of you that have been married for a long time and there are problems that come and they surface things, right? And one or both don't want to deal with the things that they're surfacing, so we ignore it as if it's going to go away. And then everything calms down and then you go about your way and then all of a sudden something happens again and the same problems surface. The same problems will continue to surface because the point of the problem in surfacing is so that you can deal with it in order to remove it. You can deal with unloving attitudes. You can deal with disrespectful attitudes. You can deal with the things that are being surfaced. That's the point. Ignoring them will not get rid of them. You have to deal with the issue. You can run. Oh, I just, you know, I meet guys, they, you know, and they run around or people, they've been married or they want to get married and that's fine, get married. But the issue isn't, isn't, a lot of times, if you don't learn to fight through the problems with this partner, you will have the same problem no matter how many partners you have. Now, I'm not here to beat people up that have been through rough relationships. That's not the issue. The issue is, is that, when, with, that relationships are designed to surface problems. That's why people don't have a lot of friends. Because when you have friends, you know what happens? Relationships collide. And problems start surfacing. Because that's, again, one of the purposes of relationship are, is to bring health is to reveal you're not emotionally healthy. You really have issues. So do you have issues. And the whole purpose of relationship is to surface issues in order that we may become whole. So that we, you, I love you, you love me, we deal with each other's junk, we help each other through the problem, and we become whole together. But people run from that. You know, when we see dysfunction in our life or in the life of another, we all end up running. That doesn't solve the problem. Relationships are created to surface problems. People are like, oh, I'm fighting, pastor. The marriage isn't working. You know what I tell them? The marriage is doing exactly what it was designed to do. Not humble, not make you happy, but make you holy. That's what marriage does, people. It doesn't make you happy, but it makes you holy. Because it shows you how much junk you have, and it shows you how much junk the other person has, and it shows you both how much you need Jesus. It's not working. Yes, it is. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's showing you you're a sinner. It's showing you you're messed up. That's what it's doing. Anyway, that's for free. Just put that over there on the side. <laughs> Get back on track, Kevin. <laughs> problems reinforce what is right and reveal what is wrong. Number three, problems you are correcting us. Here we go. Heavenly fathers discipline their children. So God is disciplining us for our good. Why? So that we can move away from what is harming us and move into his goodness. Discipline is not enjoyable while it's happening. Hello. It is painful. Hello. But afterwards, there's a peaceful reward of light, right living for those who are trained in this way. What does that mean? Well, that's a good question. God does not punish us, but he does correct us. That's important to know. The Lord does not punish you, but he does correct you. Very important. 
So just because your choice has happened, he's not punishing you because of your choice. Some, oftentimes what's happening is the result of our choice and God will take you through it and he will correct you in the process, but he will not punish you. He does not punish us. He disciplines us. Here's Job. As for the righteous, when they are afflicted, God delivers them through their affliction and uses that trial to open their ears to his voice. You see the point? It's to get you to look up. Sometimes we only learn through loss. You never knew that it valued that much until you lost it, right? You didn't know that it meant that much to you until it was gone. And sometimes we only learn value through the things that we lose. This is my favorite saying, and somebody can tweet this, so put it out there. When Jesus is all you have, you learn he is all you need. When you've lost everything and God has brought you down to the foundations of your life and you have nothing left but Jesus, you will learn through that experience that he is all you need. Trust me when I say that. That seems like this fluttering little fancy little things that you say in church. It is not. That's truth. It's truth. Vine dressers, when they, everybody drinks wine, right? We see, we, if we drink wine, you see how they dress the vine. If you're familiar with it, they cut all the branches back and leave the vine branch naked. And it looks like they just killed the vine. You know, what is he doing? He's stripped down the vine and it's like, you killed it. No, he didn't kill it. He's forcing it to make more fruit. That's what happens. And oftentimes God in our lives, because his desire is to draw us into destiny, he allows our lives to be stripped down to the very foundation in order that our foundation, because if our foundation's wrong, he wants to set it right. And you can lose everything. But if your foundation is Christ, you can rebuild it very, very quickly. Very, very quickly. Because Jesus is that foundation. Problems protect us. They prevent us from greater harm. See in the book of Genesis where Joseph was sold as a slave and his brothers were trying to do harm to him, but God turned the whole thing around. He says, what you intended for harm, God intended for good. And he brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. So sometimes a problem protects you. Sometimes losing that job is a protection. And you say, that was a big problem. No, God just protected you from, an, you know, that company is going to collapse and he just brought you out of something or he brought you out of a toxic environment because it's more healthy for you to be in another place. Sometimes problems protect us. Problems perfect us in the way that they show us how to respond correctly. They teach us what to do. They teach us what not to do. We learn from our choices and so they, they, they perfect us and they build character, not comfort. And we should say that together. Jesus, Jesus. is more interested in my character than he is my comfort. There you go. That's not a very popular thing in our today's world, but that's the truth. He's not interested in your comfort. He's interested in your character. And so everything he's doing is to build character. Character is strength of spirit, strength of person, because glory is weight. So God wants to put glory on your life. He wants to weigh your life down with significance and something powerful, but he can't put it on you because you have a weak character. And every time he gives you something, you collapse under what he gives you. So he builds the character within you. He builds the integrity within you in order to put more weight on your life, more significance. Here's Romans 3. Here's another party verse. We celebrate in suffering. What? We're celebrating in suffering because we know that when we suffer, we develop endurance, and it makes our characters stronger. And when our characters are refined, we learn what it means to hope and to anticipate God's goodness. We have expectation. One of the marks of the early Christian and one of the things that people who didn't know Christ, one of the things that just blew them away is that these people have joy and suffering. They couldn't figure it out. Why do these people party every time they have suffering? 
that just completely blew their mind. Because what they knew was that if they had a problem, God was about to take them into a new encounter or a new experience of his goodness. They knew that if they had a problem, God, they were going to have greater access to the Holy Spirit than they did before. Give your problems to God. Draw on him. Release and activate in and with him. And you'll have a greater relationship, a greater experience. Offer him your pain, your hurt, your suffering, disappointment, frustration. Give it up. Wash those organs. Romans 8, and we know that God, everything works together for the, good of God, for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. It doesn't matter what your problem is, he's going to work it out if you follow him. That is, a pre, that is a predicated promise. Almost all the Bible, all the promises in the Bible are predicated. They, I can't think of one that's not predicated. And I had somebody one time say, salvation isn't predicated. No, salvation is predicated on you surrendering your heart. You cannot experience salvation unless you, you surrender your heart. You don't surrender your heart, you don't get the promise. So there's not one promise in the Bible that isn't predicated upon an action on our part. And so God's saying, I'm going to work everything out to your good, provided you're walking according to my purpose, or provided you're letting me in on the story. Let me in on the story, and I'm going to work it out to your good. But if you don't let me in on the story, I can't work it out for your good. So what's the bottom line? God's at work in your life, even when we don't recognize it. Even if you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Christ, Jesus is at work in your life. He's drawing you to this place so that you can hear this word, so that you can have an opportunity to open your heart. He's at work in our lives, whether we understand it or not. And life becomes a lot easier when we cooperate with the Lord. Certainly. So we're going to close here. Did you guys get anything on that? Yeah? All right. Oh, yeah. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life to Jesus, you say, I believe in my mind. I would say to you, you're not born again. My grandma was a Christian. I would say to you, you're not born again. I've been to Catholic church. I would say to you, you're not born again. We must believe in our hearts and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and then he was risen from the dead. And the Bible says, if you will do that, you'll be saved. If you'll offer him your heart and surrender to him, he comes to live in you, makes you alive inside, activates inside of you. It's an amazing, amazing experience. And it's not just an experience, that experience is to draw us into a lifestyle of following Him. And if you've never done that, you don't, I'm going to present you with an opportunity right now to do that. And we're just going to pray together. We pray together as a church, so we're all going to pray together.